Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 358 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, Beth and Roberts explores the varying ways in which truth has transmuted into fiction in her novels, the different nature of truth in fiction versus truth in historical research, and how far she's prepared to go when inhabiting characters who are also real people. Then, Lawrence Sale considers the balance between recognising things and discovering them, as experienced during the creative writing process, particularly in poetry. First, here's Beth and Roberts with Fact into Fiction. So there you are, thinking, I'd like to write a novel. And there's your beautiful notebook, and it's empty. And your Word document has no words on it. And everyone on your writing course has told you it's not enough to write what you know. And besides, you probably feel a bit uneasy about taking events from your own life and turning them into fiction. What would your mum or your boyfriend say? What do you do? Well, the obvious answer is use your imagination. Make something up. But what does this mean? And how can we spark that process into life? As children, we're encouraged to use our imaginations and people often talk about writers having great imaginative powers. There's an idea that imagination is something very free, rather wild and abandoned, that it exists somehow outside of real life and is quite apart from anything ordinary, and that writers have a sort of magic channel of imagination that they can turn on and off. I'm thinking for some reason of the classic 70s TV series, Jamie and His Magic Torch, where the hero jumped down a hole beneath his bed and into a world of adventures. I've often wished I had such a hole beneath my desk. I used to worry that I didn't have enough imagination to be a writer, that it wasn't easy enough for me to jump down that hole. But I've thought a bit about it over the years and this is what I think imagination is. It doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's not about having the ability to conjure a story out of thin air, although hopefully that's how it will appear to your reader. It's about sensitivity to the world around you, about being able, focused, disciplined enough to see the extraordinary in the ordinary. It's about being, in other words, interested in a teacup, how it was made, what its shape and smell is, who held it last and what they were longing for as they drank their tea. In other words, imagination comes from the solid world around us. So I think a really good idea, if you want to write fiction, is to find out as much as possible about things that you are passionate about. This process is what some people call research. I wish there was another term, actually, one that was specific to writers. Research feels too academic, and Hilary Mantel, twice Booker winner, writing genius, the gold standard among historical novelists, doesn't like us mere mortals to use it. In her wonderful wreath lectures for the BBC, she said... Writers shouldn't claim they are doing research when they mean they are skimming facts out of pre-existing texts. Well, perhaps not. It does sound a bit highfalutin. 
But whatever we want to call it, I find that research or finding out or investigation is a good way for me to build up to writing something. It's a period which allows me time to read, daydream, create characters, events, locations. In other words, research is my imaginative hole under the bed. And for me, this hole is often led to writing about the real lives of people in the public eye. There's a long and rich tradition of turning this kind of fact into fiction, stretching from Shakespeare's history plays to Walter Scott's romances to the many based-upon-a-true-story novels of today. Joyce Carol Oates's Blonde about Marilyn Monroe and Michael Cunningham's The Hours about Virginia Woolf's are two of my favourites. In these works, the writer inhabits the gaps in the known stories of real people, imagining what it might have been like to be them in all sorts of ordinary, extraordinary situations. Despite these models, it took me four novels before I dared to use the real name of the actual person I'd researched. Before that, my nerve failed me. In my second book, The Good Plain Cook, I researched the life of Peggy Guggenheim, the eccentric millionaire art collector, and decided to write about the period of her life spent in West Sussex. Fairly late on, I realised that I'd made quite a bit up, not merely imagined how those real people had felt and dreamed scenes that were lost to history, but remodelled things and made additions that I hadn't researched at all. So I changed the names and Peggy Guggenheim became Ellen Steinberg. Having learned from this experience, I took the story of E.M. Forster and his policeman lover, Bob Buckingham, as the springboard for my next novel, My Policeman. But I deliberately changed the names, dates, location and a lot of the details from the start. I gave myself permission to make it up, but the story of Forster and Bob remained the keystone of the novel. So I guess you could say that I've tried a bit of everything. But for my novel Graceland, I was determined to stick to the truth. I wanted to honour Elvis Presley and his mother Gladys by telling their real story. But what does this mean? The first problem is, whose truth are you telling? When you're researching a novel, you need to keep an historian's eye peeled for bias and to ask why this person is telling you this story. There are always distortions, exaggerations and silences, and these are often the most interesting parts. The place where the facts are contentious can be ripe for drama. There were many distortions, exaggerations and silences that were like little red flags to me in the Elvis story. They showed me where to zoom in. For example, it's not much mentioned in the official Graceland-endorsed hagiographies of the king that his mother, famed for being a martyrish, if overbearing mama, was an alcoholic and died of an alcohol-related illness. This kind of vague half-truth territory is like catnip to a novelist. There's an undeniable thrill involved in crossing a boundary. You just can't resist going where they don't want you to go. You can't write the real, infallible, 100% certain story because it does not exist. What you can do, though, is write your own truth. And as long as you've done as much work with the available evidence as you can, I think that probably has to be enough. A novelist's truth will be different to an historian's, of course. Why do we read novels? 
We read them to understand the secrets of other people's lives, to experience what it's like to be someone else, to walk around in their bodies, see through their eyes, touch the people they love or hate, smell the things they cook, hear the songs they sang. So even if you are writing a novel based on real life, you'll have to make things up. This is what novelists must do. A novel delves into its characters' interior lives and it does it through the senses. That's where history can't take us. And most of history, even recent history, is lost because there's no record of any being's every living second and even if there was, no one but that being would be able to say what was going on in their mind. And even they probably wouldn't be certain about that. So even in the most well-trodden stories, there are silences, gaps, omissions, and this is where the novelist can jump in and say, I know, I know, because I dreamed it. This is what Joyce Carol Oates is doing when she writes of Monroe's casting couch experiences. It's what Michael Cunningham does when he describes Wolfe's prickly relationship with her cook. One of the great pleasures of writing this kind of novel is the opportunity it gives you to surprise your reader by subverting received notions of the past or the famous or the infamous. Of course, the contemporary novelist writing about the past is caught in an impossible bind. You can't escape your own time. You write out of it and your writing will carry with it the weight of its assumptions about how people are and having your characters fulfil your 21st century wishes by making them think things they couldn't, because those ideas just weren't common currency when they lived, can be very tempting. For example, when I was writing about Elvis's mother Gladys, I didn't want to portray her as the saintly, stay-at-home, sacrificial mother cow so often depicted in lazy accounts of the Presleys. But I couldn't pretend that Gladys would have had any truck with feminist ideas. She was, like all women of her era and place, constricted by the ideal of white southern womanhood. Expected to be pleasant, polite, essentially sexless, kind, quiet, God-fearing, maternal and submissive to men. But I did read that Gladys was famous in her neighbourhood for her buck dancing, even though it was frowned upon by her church and that she threw the pointed end of a ploughshare at a farm owner who tried to whip her sharecropper daddy. So I was careful to include these details in order to suggest the ways in which she rebelled and subverted that image. As long as you've dug deeply enough for them, the facts can be your friends. Of course, working with the facts, as far as we know them, is a pain in the arse, because real life is sprawling, and often pretty shapeless. Characters are never where you want them to be when you want them to be there. So why bother sticking to the real story? Why not just change the names and make it up when the going gets tough? Let's ask the goddess. Hilary Mantel says, The reason you must stick by the truth is that it is better, stranger, stronger than anything you can make up. You can select, highlight, omit. Just don't cheat. I like that. Select, highlight, omit. Selection is important. Just because something's true doesn't mean it's interesting. And the events in a novel, the characters and their stories have to be fascinating to you. If they're not, they certainly won't be to anyone else. 
You have to decide what it is that you most want to say about this story and which scenes say it best. I decided early on that the story of Elvis was, for me, the story of a boy and his mother, probably because I have a young son. So my book highlights those aspects and necessarily omits some others. If it didn't, it would go on and on and on, just like real life, and it would, in fact, be completely unreadable. Let's not pretend, though. With all this richness comes responsibility. For a while, I tried to avoid writing from Elvis's point of view. Who was I to step into a superstar's shoes? I had to work up the nerve to tackle such a massive subject, such a known story. Taking on Elvis is a challenge, and from the start I was well aware that although, like every Elvis admirer, I considered him to be mine, as a British woman who was only four years old when he died, I was entering alien and hotly contested territory. Perhaps because of this, when I first took a stab at writing the novel, it had a different frame, a present-day story of a young woman taking a tour of the Elvis sites, searching for her own mother. The responsibility of telling Elvis's story alone seemed just too great. Similarly, with my policeman, I was very aware, during the writing of the novel, of the responsibilities involved in portraying the situation. The novel tells a political as well as a personal story, and in it I inhabited the voice of an oppressed minority, a gay man in 1950s Britain, called Patrick Hazelwood. At first, the pressure of the responsibilities involved made me reluctant to write in Patrick's voice, to make any claim to knowing what life was like for this man. While I believe in the writer's right, indeed obligation, to imagine other lives, however far they may be from their own, it is tricky because it steers close to the dangers of colonisation, of exploiting stories or voices that have been historically repressed by the likes of you. Since I wrote My Policeman, this debate has moved on and the importance of the publishing industry seeking out and backing own voices from marginalised communities has rightly come to the fore. To my mind, it's not that any writer shouldn't write outside their own experience, it's that all experiences should be written about, and the more diverse the places these stories come from, the better. In the end, though, I took a risk. I couldn't resist the challenge of writing Patrick Hazelwood's voice and inhabiting his persona, just as I couldn't resist Elvis. And I hope that I at least partly earned the right to write those stories through careful and thorough research. After all, one of the great pleasures of reading and writing fiction is inhabiting worlds that are far from our own. If we can't do that, how boring would novels and life become? That was Beth and Roberts, recorded by herself and produced by Kona McPhee. You can find out more about Bethan on her website at bethanrobertswriter.co.uk. Next, here's Lawrence Sale with Recognition and Discovery. The American poet Robert Frost had a talent for producing memorable statements about poetry. Two of them, in particular from his essay The Figure a Poem Makes, have stayed with me. The first suggests that, like a piece of ice on a hot stove, 
the poem must ride on its own melting. There's something exhilarating, even alluring, about this notion of the poem melting into itself. It implies that its evolution should be organic. Maybe it is also about the importance of rhythm, that buoyant riding on its own melting, though if you follow the image too literally, you might find yourself left with a mess of melt. In the same essay, Frost addresses both parties directly involved, so to speak, in the business of writing, the writer and the reader. No surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader, he declares, taking it as axiomatic that a sense of discovery must be at the heart of the poem, an excitement available as much to the reader as the writer. Both of these assertions seem at first glance entirely reasonable, even authoritative. Both encourage a consideration of further questions that seem to lurk under the sparkle of their epigrammatic surface. How might the writer achieve the blessed state that enables the poem's melting? And then, is surprise the only or even the most important consideration for writer and reader? A reader's satisfaction may have quite other sources, such as the writer's stylistic perfection or use of form, or a fulfilling of expectations rather than the novelty of confounding them. Think of the effect in music of a perfect cadence. And how would a writer's surprise differ from or resemble the reader's? At the same time, you can see what Frost means, that the process of writing can often involve a quest. For writer and reader alike, the poem is a progress, not simply a product. But it is hard to grant even the smoothest of epigrams universality. What may hold good for one poet or poem makes no sense for another. In the end, each individual poem is its own particularity. All the same, the melting ice and the element of surprise have interesting things to suggest about two aspects of writing that, for me, have become increasingly central – recognition and discovery. By recognition, I understand the ability to identify, often from the trigger of a simple sight or sound or thought, something that might be a possibility for a poem. All poets face, at the outset, with a lesser or greater self-consciousness, the need to identify their own territory in terms of subject and method, form as well as content. And, of course, a given poem might arrive with an ease that is surprising in itself, or it might take a long time to surface, or even not find completion at all. Think of the French poet Paul Valéry's much-quoted assertion that, for perfectionists, un ouvrage n'est jamais achevé, mais abandonné. A work is never completed, only abandoned. Yet, whatever the compromises and failures of past experience, the poet still has to believe that each undertaking is a new departure, that language can retain or reinvent something of innocence and fullness.
Recognition also has to do with paying proper attention. For me, this has often meant the chance to slow down, to reconsider ostensibly familiar objects and situations in a new light. The contemporary poet David Constantine puts this very well when he writes, Much of what poetry tells us we know already, but not well enough, not keenly enough, not so that it matters. Poetry helps us realise common things better. But it is also the case that an image or an idea can come upon you quite unexpectedly. It may even bring with it the makings of the whole poem. Constantine's suggestion that poetry helps us realise common things better has its Blakean echo of seeing, as Blake put it in Augurius of Innocence, a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower. Here, the discovery is specifically of the universal in the particular, the macrocosm expressed in a microcosm. But such an insight is, of course, only one possibility. Another might be to work more by implication, keeping to the instance of the grain of sand or the flower. This matter of paying attention also touches on writers' common arguments with themselves, on the need for patience and a readiness to distinguish between being really on the song and merely competent. Above all, on the possible bonus, which is exactly the point at which recognition becomes discovery, something more than the sum of its parts. What of discovery? To me, this means the unexpected turns a poem might take along the way, as well as a destination actually unknown until arrival. In an image often used, the process of writing a poem has been likened to the irritant grit in an oyster, which might become a pearl. Another contemporary poet, Julia Copus, offers an equally striking analogy for the process of discovery. Writing poems, she suggests, is a bit like panning for gold. You have to be prepared to sit for a long while in the cold murk of the riverbed and grow heavy with alluvial dust for the sake of the gold it contains. When it comes to tracing the path that might lead from recognition to discovery, I can think of a few more telling examples than one of Edward Thomas's best-known poems, Adelstrop. It illustrates wonderfully the kind of poem described by Robert Frost that I mentioned at the outset, one that indeed rides on its own melting. In the short space of its 16 lines, ordered in four quatrains, the poem moves from a moment of almost casual engagement to something close to revelation. Here it is. Adelstrop. Yes, I remember Adelstrop. The name, because one afternoon of heat, the express train drew up there unwontedly. It was late June. The steam hissed. Someone cleared his throat. No one left, and no one came on the bare platform. What I saw 
was Adelstrop, only the name, and willows, willow herb and grass, and meadow sweet and haycocks dry, no whit less still and lonely fair than the high cloudlets in the sky. And for that minute a blackbird sang close by, and round him, mistier, farther and farther, all the birds of Oxfordshire and Gloucestershire. What is presented to the reader is cunningly couched as a representation of a past event, in the form of the answer to a question that precedes the poem, which must have been, do you remember Adelstrop, or even, I don't suppose you remember Adelstrop, do you? Maybe there was such an actual conversation, but what counts is the answer, which evolves, which becomes, which is the poem. Thomas has recognised the possibilities latent in his memory of a train stopping on a summer afternoon. It's an event that, in the first half of the poem, seems limited almost to the point of being a non-event. The little that occurs is conveyed by the thin sounds that momentarily break the silence. The steam hissed. Someone cleared his throat. And the unbroken atmosphere of absence is intensified by the indolence of a hot summer day. No one left, and no one came on the bare platform. Someone. No one. Where is the poem heading? What further direction could this sparse evocation of a moment possibly take? What I saw was Adelstrop, only the name. Yet this near cul-de-sac opens out miraculously. At its halfway point, the poem pivots brilliantly to give us much more than only the name. The brief notes of the first two verses with their short phrases and half-lines make way for a broader perspective which embraces not only trees, flowers and haycocks, but even the high cloudlets in the sky. This, in turn, unlocks something close to a revelation. Sight leads to insight. That avian chorus, led by the blackbird's song, enacts a celebratory richness far from the chatty tone of the poem's starting point. In the place of small observations plainly stated come longer, complete sentences, one for each of the last two verses. The narrative picks up speed from the start of verse 3, and willows, willow herb and grass, gaining a growing sense of excitement from the opening line of verse 4, and for that minute a blackbird sang. In fact, that simplest of links, and, occurs no fewer than nine times in the final eight lines. At the poem's conclusion, the focus lifts from the immediate and precise to the comparatives of mistier, father and father, and those county names, Oxfordshire, Gloucestershire, each with its three syllables chiming with the three of Adelstrop, acquire an incantatory quality. 
In the end, the poem not only addresses the question, do you remember Adelstrop, but discovers how and why it is lodged in the poet's mind and imagination. Someone cleared his throat is a preparation for utterance, which, when it comes, is both the bird's and the poet's song. Seamlessly, recognition and a close attention have led on to discovery. In my own writing, the most potent zone of both recognition and discovery has been the sea. Its rhythms and fluctuations are as rich and varied as language itself. Ever since childhood, it has been a source of delight in all its weathers. Best of all is to ride it in an open sailing boat, the lift and fall of the sea's muscle underfoot, the sails and rigging stiffening to the wind, the rich rush of water against the hull. The sea's protean possibilities seem endless. Tidal flux, storm and calm, neaps and springs, surface and depth, serene light and tempestuous darkness. The rapidity of its metamorphoses and any attempt to catch them, so to speak, on the wing reminds me of the painter John Constable and his attempts in his cloud studies to fix in paint the fleeting evanescence of his subjects. Working outdoors, sometimes in less than an hour, he would produce oil sketches of clouds and skies, skyscapes, as he called them, aimed at catching the details of form and colour. For each study, he noted the time of day and the weather. The challenge of the sea has likewise impelled not only painters such as Mune and Nolde, but also writers and musicians to explore its metaphorical resonances as well as its physical representation. Think Rimbaud, Whitman, Bunting, Melville, Macefield, Conrad. Think Debussy and Vaughan Williams. And whatever the artistic medium, the sea is ready to remind you constantly of its inconstancy, the way in which the image you conjured of it only a moment or a day or a poem ago has already been replaced by its latest version of itself. You can't be quite sure until you embark where the journey is leading, so that each setting out is in one way or another a voyage of discovery, even if the chart shows expanses often traversed before. In our time, we have also to take account of the oceans as dire evidence of human profligacy. Their dazzling lyrical perspectives are inseparable now, from an awareness of the worldwide damage we've inflicted on the environment. Another recognition. Another challenge. The poet W.H. Auden remarked in an essay simply called Writing that every work of a writer should be a first step, but this will be a false step unless, whether or not he realises it at the time, it is also a further step recognition and discovery working together then. But Orton's statement has a wonderful near circularity, like the rhetorical question, how do I know what I think till I see what I say? Perhaps more helpfully, the same essay reminds us that when it comes to writing, 
Everyone is, as Auden puts it, a member of a class of one. No formula, then, and all must test the weather for themselves. And then, however practised you may be as a writer, there is the hard thought that in one sense you may feel you are only as good as your next book, your next poem, your next sentence. Finally, the voyage of discovery may culminate in a new sense of recognition, one that might be described as a homecoming. Perhaps it is that idea of home which, in the end, subsumes all our journeying. That was Lawrence Sale, recorded and produced by Anne Morgan. You can find out more about Lawrence on the RLF website. And that concludes episode 358. Coming up in episode 359, in My Genre's Status, RLF writers speak about the limitations of genre and their struggle against being pigeonholed. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.